Okay. Verse 9. You are a chosen people, Messio, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. In verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Amen. Thank you, Becky. I think it's really funny when the Bible translators choose to translate some words in more modern colloquialisms and not. Like, why do they choose to use the word pagan? Like, that's not a word that I use all the time. This might have been helpful if they adjusted that just a little bit to something I'm more familiar with. So as we said, we are in a series called Letters to the Church. And we're looking at these portions of New Testament letters that invite us into more personal reflection. Portions that invite us to deeply ponder what it is that God is doing, what it is that is at the center of our faith, what it is that holds us together, that unites us, that gives us tools and guides for figuring out what it looks like to be followers of Jesus in our own world. In week one of this series, we talked about where we come from remembering our story, what led us to encounters with Jesus in the first place. And if you were here for it, I feel like it was such a wildly powerful thing to begin with because so many of us, like, we have a Jesus story, but we don't necessarily remember it all that well. It feels, like, unclear. And then as we've kind of grown up and as, like, maybe things have happened to our faith or as we've had difficult experiences, sometimes that early story is hard to hold on to, hard to even remember to think if it's even worth remembering. And so to enter into that story and hold it for a bit was kind of a beautiful thing. Then last week we talked about what centers us, what holds our faith together. And we compared it to you can have a faith that is held together by walls, structures that you've built around your faith, or you can have a faith that is held together by what is at the center When Jesus has a moment with the Samaritan woman in John 4, he says he is the well of living water. So we can have a well faith that draws us in because it is life-giving, or we can have a boundaried faith that holds us together because of all the things it keeps out. 
Similarly, we compared faith to a mountain that might be at the center of our lives. And the question we asked is, is the mountain worth exploring? Is the thing that holds us together, the thing that is at the center of our lives, this thing that we say is the center of our faith, is it worth exploring? Is it worth the risks of the mountain, the risks of how life looks like in that space? Because mountains are sort of dangerous. They're beautiful, amazing, robust places. But if you spent much time in the mountain, you've probably had a scary experience there also. So what is at the center of our faith? Is it worth exploring? Is it worth entering into? Now today, as we continue looking at these letters, we're moving on to reflect on what we're calling mission. And mission is sort of a strange word, like you, depending on what context you come from or what tradition you grew up in, it might evoke a whole set of different ideas. But here's all I mean when I use the phrase mission, is what does our faith do? If Jesus is at the center, what actually changes about the life we live? What happens in the world around us? Or if we're exploring a mountain, that's the metaphor of faith that we're using. We're exploring a mountain. We're not just car camping. We're actually entering into the mountain, doing a little backcountry skiing. What does life look like in the mountain? What adjusts about life for us in the mountain? What changes about life in the mountain? How does our world, our orientation shift when there is something holding us at the center, this well of life, this mountain worth exploring. This is a major question in the New Testament because it's not always clear how life changes when Jesus is at the center. We live with the advantage of having the New Testament letters that we've read today, but Once upon a time, the church did not have those letters to reflect on and to read. They were written to a real people. And if you're reading those letters, they are wrestling with very real questions about what happens to life when Jesus is at the very center of it. And some of those questions are really silly and some are really important. Like in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to have a conversation with the church about not getting drunk at the communion table. Now you would think, like, don't do it. There wasn't really a rule against it, though. And so the church has to have a conversation about, like, if Jesus is at our center, is this how we do table gatherings? Is this how we gather together? Is this the way of life centered on the person of Jesus? Is this what it actually looks like? But there's also really heavy questions that the church has to answer. When the Jesus message begins to spread, people who are part of the Roman army convert. And now, all of a sudden, you have Roman officers and Roman military officials trying to wrestle with, can I be a part of the Roman military and also a Jesus follower? Can I hold those two things together? And the answer isn't always clear. So they're wrestling through it, asking guiding questions. How does Jesus at the center of this thing change how I think about my occupation, my vocation, this thing that I'm a part of, this thing I've dedicated my life to? As the Jesus message spreads and non-Jews start participating in the Jesus story, the church has to begin to answer, how do we worship together? Because we always worship in the temple, but non-Jews aren't allowed in the temple. So what do we do about our gatherings now that there's a bunch of Gentiles, you and I, gathering around the Jesus story? What does church look like now? What is life together look like? It's a new question that the New Testament letters are wrestling through 
when Jesus gets placed at the center. And so often in these New Testament letters, the question for the church becomes, how do we decide that? What's the guiding principle? What's the rule of life, so to say, when we come to a question like this that is provoked by the Jesus story? As Jesus does something in the world around us, as Jesus disrupts something about our normal life, as Jesus upends the walls that were really clear around our faith before, how do we then decide where we move, where we go, what life looks like with Jesus at the center? Some instances, it unravels things. Last week, we talked about how the wall around early Jewish Christianity was Torah. But as non-Jews begin to become followers of Jesus, they have to ask a question. Do we require, like a grown man from Armenia, to get circumcised to be a Jesus follower? And they decide, no, oh, we don't have to decide that. That would be uncomfortable for him. And as it unravels those questions, it provokes a whole new set of questions. What does life look like when Jesus is at the center? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves every day. What does life look like for us in this world if Jesus is at the center? Now, we live with the advantage of having the New Testament letters that are wrestling through and asking so many of these questions. But if we interpret the New Testament letters from a different starting place than they did, we're going to actually lead to different conclusions than they did. So we need to know that we're in the same starting place, using the same guide, the same way of thinking, the same paradigm, the same imagination. But we also have to recognize that the New Testament letters were written 2,000 years ago. Paul had no concept of some modern things. Like, how do you be a Jesus follower and on social media? Now, the New Testament letters talk about image, it talks about shame, it talks about vanity. They talk about lots of things that are connected pieces, but Paul could never have imagined the internet. So then we have to ask ourselves a question. How, as followers of Jesus, do we navigate this space? Paul could never have imagined 21st century America. So how, as a Jesus follower, do we navigate these new questions, guided and inspired by the New Testament letters, but also asking, how do we image Jesus in this new world that we find ourselves in? How does Jesus at the center change the way that we live? Now, on one hand, The answer to that question is pretty simple, but also a little complicated. And what I mean by that is that Jesus sort of gives us an answer to the question, but how it flushes itself out will prove sometimes, I think, more robust and nuanced than we think about it. Before Jesus is crucified, ascends, and and resurrected and ascends, he's having a meal with his disciples, and he sort of gives them an answer to this question, a guide, a rule of life, you could so to say. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus says this to his disciples, I give you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. So you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, when you love each other. Now we're familiar with this command. I think we're familiar with this words. It's talked about in the church often. But this is the rule that Jesus gives to his disciples 
And if we just stay with it for a second, it is marvelous what it's doing to our faith and what it's doing to the way that we gather. And one of the things that is very, very marvelous about what Jesus is doing in this moment is that if you remember earlier in Jesus' life, he is asked by the teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes of Hebrew scriptures. He's asked earlier in his life, what is the most important command? And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus answers that question saying this. Now pay attention. There's a little bit of a difference between what he says in John and what he says in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus says this, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, this in and of itself is a marvelous moment. Jesus takes 613 Old Testament commands and summarizes them down into two. Love God, love others. He's getting to the very center of what Hebrew faith is supposed to look like, the very center of what Old Testament faith is supposed to look like, that all the law, all the prophets, all of the words that we've heard before are expressions of these two central ideas, to love God and love others. In this sense, you could say that Jesus is is creating sort of like a bi-directional spirituality, that you would love God and you would love others. We have an image here to demonstrate that, this really complicated, nuanced spiritual equation. (laughs) I made this this morning at 8.30. You can tell. But this is sort of the directionality of Matthew 22, that the center of Christian faith is you love God and you love others. It's beautiful. It's true. It's really good. And it's a helpful way of thinking about all the things that have come before in the Hebrew Scriptures, that all of it is an expression of this truth, that we love God and we love others. But that's actually not what Jesus says in John 13. In John 13, which is near the end of Jesus' life, Jesus transforms the emphasis of this spiritual equation. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus switches the equation from one of us loving God so much and loving others so much, he changes the emphasis to like a mono-spiritual direction that you love as you have been loved. That this would actually be the center of the Jesus way. The thing that defines this, the thing that holds it together is not how much you love God, not how great your efforts of love are, not how holy your direction towards God is, though those things are good and right, but the starting place of Christianity is this new command Jesus gives to be loved and to love like you have been loved. The Apostle John later says it this way in 1 John 4, 19, we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. And then he goes on to say, those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are 
liars. Jesus is redefining the spiritual equation, redefining our center of faith. It is not about how much you love God or how good you are or how holy your actions towards God are. It is about how much you are loved by God. That's the center of the Christian faith. How much you are loved. And that because you are loved so much, because you are loved so immeasurably that everything in your life would change. If we're using the mountain metaphor of faith, the mountain is the love of God. And because you are exploring, venturing in, climbing the mountain, everything changes because this central thing is the love of God for you. How much God loves you. Love that way. The Greek word for love in this moment It's a very famous word. Many of you probably know it. It's agape. And in Greek, there's lots of different words for love. Agape is considered the highest form of Greek love. There's lots of other kinds, other expressions, brotherly love, sexual love, just friendly love. Agape is considered the highest form of love. And you can define agape, most Bible dictionaries or Language dictionaries will translate it somewhat like this. This is the definition they'll give you. That agape love is unconditional esteem or value or honor expressed in action. So agape is more than affection. There's a word for affection. And God is often described as affectionate. But agape is more than affection for us. It's more than empathy. There's also Greek words for empathy, and God is said to be empathetic. But agape is more than empathetic. Agape is a dignifying kind of love. It's a respectful kind of love, an honoring kind of love, a valuing kind of love. It's a kind of love that speaks to the very identity of a person. A kind of love that seeks to restore a person's truest sense of self. One that imparts respect and honor and dignity to the other. It's a love that reminds and restores us to who God created us to be. That kind of love is the center of the Christian story. Agape love, love that dignifies, love that respects, love that honors, love of high esteem, love of high value. That's the center of the Christian story, which then means, if we go back to the question of what is the mission of the Christian life, the first mission of the Christian life becomes growing into our understanding of God's love for us. So Jesus said in John 13, this is the command I give you. Love, what? As you have been loved. 1 John 4, 19, you love because you have been so loved. So the very first task of the Christian life is to grow into an understanding of our own belovedness, our own esteem, that God values you and honors you. It is to know yourself restored. It is to grow into a sense of agape love, true, dignified, honoring love. This is what Paul prays for 
the church at Ephesus. This is one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament. Paul prays this in Ephesians 3, verse 16. I ask that you, church, have the power to grasp. Hear that phrase. I ask you have the power to grasp that this thing we're talking about is so massive. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to give you some kind of power beyond yourself to understand what? Love's width and length and height and depth. I ask you have the power to grasp love's width and depth, height and depth together with all believers. I ask that you know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so that you will be filled entirely with the fullness of God. What a fascinating thing that Paul does there. Connects your understanding of God's love for you to your fullness with God. That the two are inseparably linked together. That to grow into Christ-likeness, to grow into Christian maturity, to grow more into the depth and presence of God is to grow into the love of God for you. The dignifying, esteeming, high-valued love, agape love of God. Missio, are you growing into the agape love of God? Is that your center? The agape love of Jesus for you. Are you learning to trust that you are esteemed and valued and honored by God? What does that phrase even feel like when you hear it and say it? Missy, are you growing into the agape love of God for you? Because it is from that center that all of Christian life moves. And if there is another center, well, Christian life will look like whatever that other center is. So if that center of our life is fear, well, the Christian life is going to look like fear. And every one of us in this room has probably had an experience like that. If the center of the Christian life is some kind of self-hatred or judgment, well, then Christian life is going to look like self-hatred and judgment. If the center of the Christian life is moral superiority to others, it's going to look like moral superiority. Whatever the center of your life is, it's like the gravity that pulls you with gravitational pull. Your orbit will be determined by the center. So if it is something other than the agape love of Jesus, it is something other than Jesus. So, Missy, are you learning to trust the love of God? Because it is from your center that all of life will move. All of Christian life is intended to be a response to an act of the agape love of God. For example, if we take an idea like repentance. Repentance is a Christian idea. We talk about it. It can often evoke fear in some or shame in some for all good reasons because sometimes the way that repentance gets talked about is sort of frightening or it pulls on those strings of maybe fear or shame or guilt. But if the agape love of Jesus is the center of our life, then it changes how something like this, repentance, or any Christian practice is oriented and works. Repentance is fundamentally acknowledging and turning away from sin. This is the thing that we do in and 
by love. Paul tells us this in Romans 2 verse 4. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says this, don't you realize that it is God's kindness that leads you to change your heart and life? Greek word there is metanoia, repentance. Don't you realize that it is God's love that leads to repentance? And the reason that is true is that sin in Scripture, sin when compared to the love of God, sin is a violation of love. It's saying that we or others are not worth the love that God has said we are, that we are not image bearers, that we are not restored, that we're not redeemed, that God's order of creation is not good, that love is not the defining truth of reality. Sin is saying no to that. It's saying that we or others are not worth love. So, for example, if we lie, lying isn't bad because it's some kind of moral, like, checklist that we're supposed to fill. Lying is about respecting the dignity of ourselves and others. Are people worthy of truth? Are you worth the truth? Because God's created order. The word of love says you are worth the truth. But any sin is a violation of that truth, of that love. And so then repentance becomes about accepting what God says is true. It becomes about receiving the agape, esteem, honor, and value that is at the center of our life. It is the kindness, the love of God that leads us into changing our life. Paul says it similarly. I don't think I put this verse up there. In Colossians 3, 9, he says, Don't lie to one another. Because you've taken off the lie. You've taken off the old self. And you have put on the new self, the beloved self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the, and the image of the creator. Well, how do we grow into the fullness of God? Paul already told us in Ephesians, we grow into our understanding of love. So all of Christian life becomes an outpouring, a movement, a flow with the agape center, the love, the dignity, the value, the esteem of Jesus. We are loved, Missio. And the center of our life, if it's love, will flow into everything else. The more that we know ourselves as loved, well, Jesus says the more that we will love. John 13, love as you have been loved. This is how the world knows that you are my disciples. 1 John 4, 19, love because you have been loved. And if you don't love, if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you don't know God. One of my favorite verses in Romans 15, 7, Paul says, welcome each other in the same way that Christ welcomed you for God's glory. You've been welcomed, so welcome. You know yourself is loved, so you can love. Something marvelous that Paul does in this moment in Romans 15, 7, he says, welcome each other in the same way that Christ also welcomed you. Why? For God's glory. Paul is equating worship with our love for other people. Isn't that fascinating? That your act of worship as a Christian, your act of praise, your act of giving glory to God, it is how you love others. Welcome as you have been welcomed. Why? For God's glory. Love at the center, that new direction of Christianity that God loves us so much that we love others, it reorients what worship is to a love of others. Welcome as you have been welcomed to God's glory. 
as the center of our life becomes the agape love of Jesus. It moves into every other part. It reorients what Christian life looks like. Our first mission becomes about growing into the love of God. And then it moves into how we are oriented in the world around us. The passage that Becky read for us at the beginning from 1 Peter 2, this is exactly what it's naming. In verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, Peter reminds us that we are God's chosen, God's beloved, holy and loved by God. It's remembering the story, centering us in the story. It's why we spent two weeks remembering and centering. What is the thing that holds you? Is it agape love? If it is, here's where we go. Remember that love is at the very center. And then he goes on to say, therefore, if love is at your center, dear friends, since you are immigrants and strangers in the world, I urge that you avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives that wage war against love, things that would deny your love. And then he says this, which is fascinating, live honorably. Well, where have we heard that word before? Oh, it's how you define agape, unconditional esteem, value, and honor. Live agape love in the world around you. Live honorably. Live out of the dignity that God has given you and live towards others in dignity and agape love. Live honorably among those around you. Today they may defame you as if you were doing evil, but in the day when God visits, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable, again, agape deeds. That you have lived true according to love in your own self, and in the world around you. You have lived as beloved. Monsieur, the center of the Christian life is the agape love of Jesus. It is God's unconditional esteem, value, and honor for you. And as that grows in us, and as our sense of that grows, and as our understanding of it grows, it moves into the world around us. That the more we know ourselves as deeply loved, the more we love. The more we know ourselves as secure in the agape love of Jesus, the more that we are secure in the world around us. And in case we forget the reason for it, Peter again reminds us in verse 21, you were called to this kind of life, this endurance. Why? Because Christ suffered on your behalf. Because you have been loved. Therefore, you have an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You have been so loved so that you might love. This is the center. This is what holds the Christian faith together the agape love of Jesus. It's what's strong enough to wrestle with the doubts, the questions, the difficulties that we bring to this because it is big enough for all those things because what it speaks back to us is dignity, esteem, and value, agape love. If we miss the center of the Christian life, well, like a planet that controls the gravity around us, we miss everything. So, Missy, what we're going to do 
So we're going to take a few minutes to respond to these words of centering in the agape love of Jesus with our own correspondence. This is why you need one of those journals. What we're going to do is we're going to create five minutes just to reflect on the agape love of God that is at the center of our lives. Monsieur, how does it change how you see yourself? How does it change your own sense of identity, your own sense of your own nature? And as you wrestle with the agape love of God for you, it has to spread. That's what it says in the text. You have been so loved, so loved, so it has to move. It goes out of us. You can't not wrestle with this mountain of love and have it not change everything about you. So as you wrestle with this, how does it change your identity? How does it shape how you live and interact with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people around you? So, Missy, what we're going to do So we're going to take five minutes right now to reflect on that question and to use the journals that we have to write out our responses. The prompt will be here on the screen. After five minutes or so, I'll come back up and lead us into communion. Missy, let me pray for you, and then let's reflect on what does it mean for us to have the agape love of Jesus at our center. Jesus, today as we reflect and wrestle with the love that you have given, displayed, and proclaimed today, would it just decenter whatever else tries to be the, the, the gravity that we're pulled around? Would it challenge the lies that we believe, the idols that we worship, the hopes that we so often put ourselves into, and with the centering force of our life today, begin to become your agape love for us, your esteem, your value, your honor for us? Would it reshape our sense of identity? Would it reshape how we think about our own work and our own life to be about growing into that truth? And then would it move into every other place of our life? As we are loved, would we love? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.